all you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Welcome, one and all, to episode 165 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this would be the gambling and U.S. income tax episode of the SLS Cast. Because it turns out that for professional gamblers and recreational gamblers, there are U.S. income tax sections in the tax code that pertain just to those specific activities. And while it comes from the D section of this section of the U.S. income tax section of the tax code, it turns out that professional gamblers and recreational gamblers, they turn to section 165. And with that wonderful little bit of whirlwind tax knowledge on gambling, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from the new bunker in L.A. would be our Sony resident employee... Tim! And I must say, that was the most entertaining opening of the show that you have ever done. I think we all, when it comes to tax time, just really enjoy people using their free time with tax talk. Oh, yes. Well, at this rate, we only need 100, another 165 episodes so I can be entertaining again. Do you are, are you one that's like, yeah, it's tax time. I'm so excited to fire up the TurboTax or whatever and get it done. Or do you procrastinate and kind of like shove it off to the side and wait till the very last minute to get your taxes done? Well, it's a team effort over here at the Quentin household because we have to file jointly. So... Um, we usually just wait till the W-2s or whatever the hell they are come in and, um, which I got mine. I don't know if, uh, the wife has gotten hers yet. I imagine she would have had to cause it's February 1st and you're supposed to get them by the 29th. So, um, so we'll probably take a look at it come about March and make sure we have all the paperwork and then Jen just sits down and spends about an hour and that's it. Till you realize you don't have the paperwork, and then you're frantically running around the house trying to look for it. No, it's really not that difficult for us. We, That's good. Because we don't have anything super special that would cause us to heavily itemize or anything like that. Um, it doesn't cause all that avalanche of additional paperwork that starts to pile up. Because it's when you know you own the house, and you start claiming certain mortgage exemptions, and you're starting to itemize certain deductions based on uh, how much of a student or the teacher or this or that or whatever your profession is, or you own a business, blah, blah, blah. That's what causes it to do. If you don't make enough for that stuff to start changing, um, then... It's pretty simple. And while, yes, most people could sit down and itemize more even if they didn't really want to, the government wins. I just don't care so they can keep the extra $20, $30, you know? Riveting. Just ri- yes. your, your work I am sure this that I feel, better, <laughs> I feel better knowing that they could waste it far more efficiently than I could. So I think you could win a Peabody Award for tax talk. <laughs> indeed 
So how was the move, sir? The move was good. Every, all boxes are unpacked and stuff is up and out and put in their designated areas. Uh, other than a couple or one room, my office, I guess, which I need a. I, I realize that you can't really unpack t- unless you have something to actually put that stuff in. And there's only so much you can really cram into a closet. So I realized I really need to get a desk so I can start putting stuff in. So now it's uh, now now it's time for us to start buying, you know, the old kitchen table so we can actually sit down and eat and not spill anything on the couch. And Good Lord, how small was your old apartment? Pretty small. Uh, this place is significantly bigger and in a prime location. Wise, ballpark it. What was your old what was your old joint? Ooh, five hundred. Wow. Ish. What are you at? What are you running now? Uh probably nine hundred ish. Goodness. Yeah. Well, you really did double in size there, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, so it's nice. I I, I love it. It's close to the I've... beach. We're right by LAX. So if you hear anything really loud, uh, you know, and it, it muffles my voice, that is because a seven forty seven is flying right across the house. I mean, there's only so much that double pane windows can mask when it comes to a jumbo jet. Sure, and also explains the good deal you got on the place. So true. <laughs> hey, I didn't say anything about a good deal. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's should I uh, been? F- oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. Yes, go ahead. Oh no, no I was going to ask if uh, I should jump into the news of the weird. Unless you I know. was actually just about to suggest that very thing. We are simpatico. Go ahead, sir. Favor us with some news of the weird. So this is short, and I was going to bring this up in the news until I realized, well, I I can knock it out at the beginning of the show, when most of you guys are hopefully still listening to the show. From Pace.com, Paramount PAs allege they were forced to defecate in their cars on set. That is right, the PAs serve up a steamy lawsuit. This is written by... (laughs) Gabby Gimson, and this was published on January 26th of this year, and it says this, Paramount Pictures may have literally and metaphorically stepped in it. The studio's being sued by four production assistants over crappy working conditions, but the details of the lawsuit are especially disturbing. The PAs are alleging that Paramount, along with Nickelodeon Movies, Regency Films, and a number of other production companies, prohibited them from leaving their posts during filming, so they were forced to relieve themselves in their cars. According to court documents, the parking production assistants were not allowed bathroom breaks, and the plaintiffs resorted to number one and number two in, quote, bottles and buckets in their vehicles, end quote. Yikes. The PPAs... PP, huh? Yeah, the P... <laughs> you sure it wasn't poo-poo-as? I know, right? I just asked yeah. it. Who worked on films such as Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and The Wolf of Wall Street were allegedly kept at their posts between 60 and 100 hours per week with no overtime pay. They were instead paid a flat rate of $150 for working 12-hour days on average and were not compensated for or given food by their employers. The plaintiffs are suing the production companies for back pay and damages for lost compensation and, you know, the humiliation of pooping in a car, in all quotes there. 
So, I mean, we can go into an endless discussion about labor laws and what the employer should and should not do. But would you, I think the most important discussion that we can have over this is would you or would you not defecate in your own vehicle? Well, I think, first of all, it's probably a lot more traumatizing and embarrassing to bring a suit like this because, see, nobody knows that you pooped in a car unless you said so. And now not only are you telling these people, you're telling lawyers, and the, then you're suing, and now the world knows. So, you you know, you, maybe you shouldn't have had to have pooped in a... Maybe you shouldn't be faced with that choice. But at the same time, you know, you are kind of bringing it on yourself. On the studio side of that, I must say, see, they should have just been filming in Spain because these people could have saved up their poop for the holidays and pushed it out the loaf and all that shit and given it to the uh, poop Santa guy that we talked about at Christmas. Oh time. yeah, oh well no, Cagatio, that's the Cagat Cagatio. That's the shit, that's the shitting log. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Uh you know, I can tell you right now, um it it's pretty amazing what the human body is willing to withstand in terms of um relieving or not relieving oneself. So as a dude, I can simply say, I'm going to go hide behind that car and pee. Um, I think I can manage to go 20 hours without pooping. I'm, I, I feel confident that if, if forced, I could go 20 hours without pooping, which means I could make it that 15-hour shift and then just go home and poop. So Let the floodgate open. Let the mudslide yeah. begin. I, I just... I, so should they have been made to work for 15 hours without a restroom break or something? Nah, I guess not. But, yeah, come on. Seriously. Well, I'll tell you what. How, how does the logistics of that even work? You're in the car. Why don't you just, like, squat over a bucket behind a car? Why are you in a car to begin? Why would you risk the mess? Forget the smell. Why would you risk the mess? That's just... Oh, well. well, I'll tell you what, you know for a fact they will not be getting jobs at Paramount Pictures after this. But I kind of wonder, like, if you were the, like, if I was the lawyer and these people came up to me and told me about this, I think my first question to them would be, well, what kind of car do you have? Because I think that's what that really makes. I mean, I, we're missing that mental image of the type of car that they are in. Could be my. I mean, is it weird? I don't know. I don't know. Is it a Chevy Spark? <laughs> it's, a, it's a tiny car. <laughs> maybe it's a. Maybe it's an El Camino, or or an El Cagamino. An El Cagatillo. Yeah, there we go. Oh. <laughs> For those of you who do not right. know what we are talking about, please listen to episode whatever the Christmas episode. Yeah. I heard the, it was it's got to be like 57 it's got to be like 58 59 or 60. Yeah, I heard the sticks on Cagatillo or something like that. <laughs> it was a play on religion and pooping. It worked. All right. Well, before we drift into real news, I guess we'll check the old email box and lo and behold, we got email again. Yay, email 
of course, that was sent to the show at slscast.com. First up, we have a Twitter follower, a new Twitter follower, so awesome. And, of course, you can follow us at the slscast on Twitter. And it turns out that our new follower on Twitter is Ciara McAvoy. And we're going with Ciara because we've got C-I-A-R-A. And it says multi-award winning poster artist and producer and actually is legit. Got an IMDb article, got a Wikipedia article, and we actually, uh, it's out of Glasgow. And you can actually check out the website, uh, com. We went and checked it out. It's really cool. Like, Ciara McAvoy has done poster work for, like, uh, Star Wars Episode Three and... Um, x-men first class and stuff which is cool because x-men first class was episode one like the first time the original series episode one so this is pretty cool so be sure to check out some art there that's that's neat and then last but not least of course is our actual email and this was a reply because we made a we made a goof when uh tim had asked diana for the correct pronunciation of Houston versus Houston Street and she sends us Houston Street versus Houston Texas and here you go Tim and she says also I didn't know this either cheers Diana and according to the actual article it the Wikipedia article it is pronounced Houston, and the reason why is because it is named for William Houston, who was a delegate from the state of Georgia to the Continental Congress from 1784 through 1786, and to the Constitutional Convention in 1787. That's where the name comes from, and of course, uh, William Houston. The, the spelling is actually H O U S T O U N. So you would think maybe like Housetown, but no, 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 it's House 10, and that's where we get Houston Street. Touche, Diana, touche. There you go. So thank you, Diana, for again or telling us how it, how it is. And um, I guess that would then um, send us pretty much to the news, would it not? That would be correct. All right, folks. Well, then, here we go. It's... The news! Alright, so first up, uh, I've only got two news pieces this week. Again, we've got a lot of movies to cover. We're trying to compensate for that by having no bonus segment this week. Um... Probably should have asked this before. We're not doing a bonus segment next week, are we? Probably not. No, yeah, I think we're going to skip segment three for next week, too. (laughs) So we're just going to be doing news and movies for this week and next week. All right. Uh, So first up from me from independent.co.uk by way of Jack Shepard. Star Wars and the Marvel Cinematic Universe will quote... Go on forever, end quote, says Disney CEO Bob Iger. Yes, you have just heard that terrible, 
terrible, terrible news. Disney has a pretty huge slate of upcoming films. Not only do they have numerous live-action takes on classic animations, such as Cinderella and Jungle Books scheduled for release, they also have numerous Marvel and Star Wars films in the works. First off in the Marvel department, there's Captain America Civil War, Doctor Strange, Black Panther, Captain Marvel, Thor, Ragnarok, Avengers Infinity War, another Ant-Man, and Inhumans. Oh, and three as yet untitled projects, as well as Spider-Man with Sony. Then, on the Star Wars front, there's Episode 8, Episode 9, Rogue One, the Han Solo spinoff, along with a possible Boba Fett film. If that wasn't enough for you, Disney CEO Bob Iger has some good news for you. Quote, there will be more Star Wars films after that, end quote, he told BBC Newsbeat. Quote, I don't know how many, I don't know how often, end quote there. Then, when asked about the future of Marvel Cinematic Universe, Iger said, quote, Marvel, you're dealing with thousands and thousands of characters. That will go on forever, end quote. Now, Bob Iger, I'm going to finish this right quick. He says, because uh, he was asked, don't you think people are going to get, you know, weary from this? And he said, quote, no, I don't think they're getting weary, end quote. He went on to say that it's because they're raising the bar in entertainment. Now, Combining this information with the previous information of them literally releasing a Star Wars movie every year virtually nonstop, and now the news of the Marvel Cinematic Universe going on forever, this is terrible because that means the glut of superhero sci-fi crap is never going to end, which means we're going to have... Or listen, I say never, um, but... There is no end in sight currently, which means it's going to be that much harder to get better, more original stories, better, more fun stuff. And you're going to hit the fatigue point so quickly that it's going to cause a crash instead of having things for people to look forward to, like a break of like five or six or seven years or maybe even 10 years, you know, before doing another four or five films or something. It's just all the time and people are like not going to be able to they're not going to want to handle it i think this is an absolutely horrible indicator of where things are going in the disney universe and i love disney people you guys know this about me i love disney i love going to the parks and of course i love star wars and i much more than tim overall enjoy the marvel movies but that's not to say we need them all the goddamn time holy shit tim I'm sure you have a little something to say or add or, you know, you have five seconds to boo and hiss this villain. Go ahead, man. What do you got? What do you got to say? No, Matt, I think this is a great idea. I think we should continue (laughs) having six more or six Disney movies a year. (laughs) And that's the quote that we're going to send and play back for Tim every time he gets mad at Disney. (laughs) No, I think it's a bad idea because my thing with Marvel and I don't uh, I, I didn't come up with this myself but uh, a friend of mine jacob who uh, lives out here as well from houston we talk about marvel movies quite often because he is a little bit more forgiving with them for me but we both kind of shared the same view of age of ultron which it it's not a good movie and while talking he mentioned that he can see the Marvel movies, I mean, you can't really go anywhere past uh, the Infinity Wars. I mean, that is a huge story right there. 
can't top it. So when that's over, you have to go back to smaller films. And I think that would be a great idea. Just start releasing smaller I'm not talking about like an independent type of film, but kind of more comparison or on the same level as Captain America Winter Soldier without the epic crazy battle at the end of it. I think they should make smaller movies. Now, whenever they start doing that and they start making just smaller movies, people aren't going to really care about smaller movies. So that is why, like what Matt said, they have to space these suckers out. Once you're done with an Infinity War... Okay, that sounds good. Well, then create another well-oiled machine that actually works and go on from there. There's not one person that knows everything. You know, like whenever I was doing acting, one thing my theater director would always tell me is that you have it, you don't know everything. There's no actor in the world that cannot learn from each new experience. Like Dustin Hoffman, every performance, he learns something new and learns something different about the craft. And I think that's an important thing for Marvel to do and Disney to do. They need to learn and improve on their films. And especially with these Marvel movies, it just doesn't seem like they're trying to improve. Other than, you know, we have a couple Marvel movies that are actually really good and they kind of veer off the path a little bit. So yeah, I mean, we just need smaller stuff and not as often. So that was kind of a long way of agreeing with you (laughs) right on no worries man all right what do you got for us all right i'm gonna knock out two pieces of news real quick uh the first one from the hollywoodreporter.com abe vigoda detective fish on tv's barney miller dies at 94 uh this is kind of a bummer i always thought abe vigoda was an older guy i mean whenever i was a kid he was in his 70s and he always kind of looked the same, though I haven't seen picture or video videos of him over the past couple of years, so I don't know if he has progressively looked older. But I always thought of him as an older man. But I always liked him in the films that I saw him in, so this is kind of... You know, kind of kind of a small little bummer when I read about this this morning. But the three-time Emmy nominee also starred in his own spin-off series and was memorable as a mob boss in The Godfather. Abe Vigoda, who earned Emmy nominations in three straight years for his portrayal of the world-weary detective Phil Fish on the 1970s ABC sitcom Barney Miller, has died. He was 94. The actor's daughter, Carol Vigoda Fuchs, confirmed the passing to the Associated Press, saying that Vigoda died on Tuesday morning at home in New Jersey. Vigoda also is remembered for his role as hulking mob boss Sal Tassio in Francis Ford Coppola's first two Godfather films. In 1982, People magazine noted that the late Abe Vigoda did not attend the Barney Miller rap party, and rumors reports of his death circulated many times in the ensuing years. A website was created with a sole purpose to indicate whether the actor was dead or alive. The good-natured Vigoda capitalized on the bizarre situation to keep his career going in his later years. He made frequent appearances on Late Night with Conan O'Brien and The Today Show, starred with Betty White in a widely popular Snickers commercial that debuted during the 2010 Super Bowl telecast, and was revealed to be inside a furry costume on stage at a 2013 Fish concert in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And the article goes on from there. Abe Vigoda passed away. He was 94. He will be missed by a lot of people, actually. 
And the next piece of news is brought to us by FilmSchoolRejects.com, and this is probably going to be the weirdest piece of news of this week. Film School Rejects' Joseph Fiennes will play Michael Jackson in the weirdest 9-11 movie of all time. Yes, that is Joseph Fiennes, as in Shakespeare in love, Joseph Fiennes, and the brother of Ralph Fiennes. This article was written by Neil Miller, and it was published on January 27th, and it says this, Mere weeks after the Academy of Motion Picture, Arts and Sciences was pummeled by the internet for hashtag Oscar so white, we've got another story that is so head-spinning, we can't believe that it's real. But don't worry, it is real. Joseph Fiennes will play the late Michael Jackson in a road trip movie involving the days after the terror attacks of September 11th, 2001. To be clear, this is the same Joseph Fiennes who hails from England, is the brother of Ralph Fiennes, and starred in the Oscar Best Picture winning film Shakespeare in Love. He will be playing Michael Jackson, the famed African-American pop singer. If the project weren't weird enough, it will also be set in the days that followed the most prominent and tragic day in the history of our country. The film will be a short TV special of the half-hour variety written by Neil Forsythe for the British network Sky Arts. So we're not talking about a major motion picture, but still, very weird. The story is based on an urban legend of sorts. A 2011 Vanity Fair article reported a story in which Jackson, Elizabeth Taylor, and Marlon Brando made the cross-country road trip from New York to Los Angeles together following the terrorist attacks of 9-11. In a story that was later debunked by members of Elizabeth Taylor's staff, it was reported that Taylor and Brando had been invited to Jackson's show on September 10th of 2011. Following the attacks that leveled the World Trade Center the next morning, an incident that grounded air travel across the country, the trio were said to have rented a car so that they might make their way back to the West Coast. The surreal account of the original story involves the following passage, which is almost too unbelievable. Quote, A former employee of Michael Jackson's says that Michael, like General Washington, led his entourage to a temporary safe haven in New Jersey before the three superstars took to the open road. They actually got as far as Ohio, all three of them, in a car they drove themselves, he recalls. Brando allegedly annoyed his traveling companions by insisting on stopping at nearly every KFC and Burger King they passed along the highway. One can only imagine the shock their parents caused at a gas station and rest stops across America. End all quotes there. Oh, it does mention that uh, Grease's stalker Channing will be playing Elizabeth Taylor and X-Men's Brian Cox <laughs> as a Burger King-loving Marlon Brando. So yes, Matt, questions, concerns about Abe Vigoda. Were you a big fan of his? Questions, concerns over this new Michael Jackson short film. Okay, well, first of all, definitely sad to hear about Abe Vigoda. I always recognized him even growing up before I understood who he was, uh, just because he had that kind of gummy face that he was so known for. But 
Um, and so it is sad to, to know of his passing. A, a very good character actor in his own right in his later years. As far as the other piece, I thought you said we already did News of the Weird. What the shit? <laughs> I, don't, I don't understand. My head hurts. <laughs> trying to wrap my trying to wrap my mind around this, but um, I guess if we get an opportunity, we should see it to say we saw it. <laughs> we should dedicate an entire episode to the greatest uh, road trip good. comedy of all time. Let's not get carried away. Uh, all right. Well, this is the last piece of news for me from Variety.com. And it seems to be very serendipitous that it's going to follow that uh, Michael Jackson short film piece. For, this is from Sundance. Obviously, Sundance is already concluded. But shortage or, you know, all the movies, not a lot of news. We're stacking up here. So this was a report from Sundance back on the 22nd. Daniel Radcliffe's Farting Corpse movie prompts walkouts. <laughs> this comes to us by way of Ramin Satude. One of the most anticipated movies at this year's Sundance Film Festival also turned out to be among the most divisive. On Friday afternoon, the Eccles Theater had to turn away hundreds of movie fans and even a few industry VIPs at the packed premiere of Swiss Army Man, starring Daniel Radcliffe and Paul Dano. But the bizarre fable about a lost man, uh, played by uh, Dano, who befriends a farting corpse... Radcliffe could win the festival's award for the most walkouts as a continuous stream of audience members kept standing up and bolting for the door <laughs> throughout the film. The indie, directed by the music video duo Daniel Kwan and Daniel Scheinert, opens with Radcliffe as the corpse washing onto a shore. Dano's character inspects the body as it comes to life by twitching and passing gas. The story unfolds in a magical, realist style and features long discussions about masturbation, isolation, and the meaning of life. It also features a kiss between Dano and Radcliffe, who continues to flee his Harry Potter image by taking part in, recurring, in a recurring gag where his dead character maintains an erection. <sighs> Let's see here. Quote, The chance to play a dead guy in this context was too much fun to pass up, end quote. Radcliffe said in an audience Q&A. Scheinert said the inspiration for the story was, quote, a fart joke, end quote. And the, uh, the article closes with this sentence, the film has drawn mixed reactions. <laughs> uh, a very um, salient and yet concise article written by Ramin Satude. What do, what do you think there, Tim? <laughs> this this just sounds like a complete <laughs> sounds like a complete waste of time, all the way around. Um, are you familiar at all with this Swiss Army Man film? Yeah, I read about that last week. I am intrigued. <laughs> I love me some Paul Dano, so I mean, there there has to be a reason why he decided to do this movie. You know, I still <laughs> when I read articles like this. Um, I, I am, I am still convinced that it's not out of the realm of possibility that sometimes people lose a bet and it's like, they have to do these, these kinds of movies. Two people lost a bet. No, cause Radcliffe said that he wanted to do it. 
Radcliffe, that's why I said the quote, the chance to play a dead guy in this context was too much fun to pass up, end quote. And that was in a Q&A <laughs> with the audience. So clearly Radcliffe did not lose the bet. And I love Paul Dano as well. So, um, yeah, I just, okay. A- anyway. So... <laughs> It will go on the double bill, uh, the double bill with the the greatest road trip comedy the BBC has ever seen. <laughs> Indeed. All right, sir, bring us home on the news. All right, uh, I'm going to s- just end with two pieces of news. All right, so my last two pieces of news. This one is pretty interesting, and I cannot wait for this release via Blu-ray.com. New restoration of Abel Gantz's. Napoleon headed to Blu-ray. This was posted on January 27th, and this is written by Webmaster, the webmaster of Blu-ray.com. The British Film Institute has announced that a brand new restoration of Abel Gantz's legendary film Napoleon from 1927 will be released on Blu-ray later this year. The new restoration will have its theatrical premiere with a live performance by the Philharmonia Orchestra of Carl Davis's score the longest ever composed for a silent film, in early November at the Royal, Phil- uh, the Royal Festival Hall. The new restoration was undertaken by experts from the BFI National Archive and Photoplay Productions, working with Dragon DI post-production in Wales. The film has been fully regraded and carefully cleaned up. The current version of the film was compiled by Academy Award-winning filmmaker, archivist, and historian Kevin Brownlow, and is the most complete version of the film in existence. Mr. Brownlow spent more than 50 years tracking down surviving film elements. The film runs at well over five and a half hours on screen, but live performances, which require intermissions, typically last around eight hours. The upcoming Blu-ray release will be the world premiere of the full version of the epic film. And this is awesome. Uh, I hope some of you listening are very familiar with this film. Because back in the day, we, we've, we've, we, we talk about Cinerama and Panavision and Cinemascope, I should say. Where a movie is shot with a particular camera that gives you length. And whenever you're looking at scenery, you're actually looking at scenery, and it's a beautiful way of shooting films. Uh, in fact, that is how Quentin Tarantino shot The Hateful Eight, is with the Ultra Panavision. Well, for early Ultra Panavision, I guess, what they would do is they would shoot a scene with three different cameras, and as they were playing that film back, they would be shooting it from three different projectors. Uh, which is kind of like how Cinerama turned out to be. Also, because they would have to shoot different projectors on the screen. But they would be more like these were shooting, or these were uh, these were projecting onto various panels. And man, back in 1927, watching this for the first time, it must have been astounding, because the visuals in this movie are stunning, and a whole lot of hard work went into it. And it's said to be one of the better films about napoleon bonaparte so do check it out again this was new restoration of abel Gantz's napoleon heading to blu-ray later this year and finally the last piece of news from this week pertains to the revenant via collider.com the bear from the revenant speaks about filming the attack on leonardo dicaprio this is written by did 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 it 
Can I can I see if he sounded like this? <laughs> Written by Dave Trumbor. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's probably what he sounded like when he had when he had his face up Leo's ass. So, though most of the screen time the bear received in Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu's The Revenant was spent in the form of a skin pelt wrapped around the shoulders of Hugh Glass, he did have quite the buzzworthy performance in a very violent attack on the frontiersmen. And though DiCaprio famously suffered through extreme cold and bizarre diets in order to inform his survivalist character, it would be quite risky indeed to expose the Oscar-nominated actor to mauling by an actual wild animal. Inner stuntman Glenn Ennis. With almost 15 years of stunt work, Ennis has turned in numerous roles in both the television and feature film landscapes, but the highest profile role to date may very well be the nameless bear responsible for savaging DiCaprio. Sound glamorous? Well, Ennis talked about shooting the scene at length with Global News, revealing the very practical side of this powerful digital effects sequence. For starters, you might be wondering how a stuntman of Ennis's experience found himself in a giant blue bear suit. He says, They had two people from the States doing some of the rehearsing, getting the routine down. One of them had to go to the hospital for exhaustion. The process is picking someone up, throwing them around, turning them, attacking them. Running on your hands and feet for 10 yards is pretty tough for a big guy. It's nonstop for a full two minutes. Once this guy was taken to the hospital, I got a call from Vancouver asking me if I could come do this. I learned the routine rather quickly. They wanted authenticity, someone who moved like a bear, maybe by acting background helped with it. Because of physical exhaustion, it was impossible for one person to do it exclusively. But I was the number one bear. The number one bear, embodied by Ennis, learned to become the creature by studying videos of people being attacked by actual bears on YouTube. He thanks Charles Darwin for his minor miracle. Ennis commented on the playfulness of the bears when mauling their would-be dinner, a trait that was captured in The Revenant. But actually, okay, uh, so one of the most, okay, this is what I really wanted to get to, and I will end with this. The article, uh, I wouldn't say it's lengthy, but the original article is lengthy from globalnews.com, so I do uh, recommend you checking it out. But Ennis goes on to explain just how grueling the rehearsals and filming process were. But a lot of DiCaprio fans probably think that rolling around in the dirt with a veteran actor sounds like a dream come true. Ennis responds, You were rolling around on the forest floor with Leo. You realize that's a dream for many people, right? Ennis laughs. I was, about 20% of the time. That's the funniest thing. If you notice the bear head in the picture, they wanted the bear mouth to be right on his lower back. I was supposed to grab his jacket with my hand to make it look like the bear's jaws were pulling it. In order to have the bear's jaws in the small of his back... Basically, my face was in his butt. My face was in Leo's butt for a fair bit of time. I can see how that's someone's fantasy, but it wasn't mine. He laughs. End all quote. So, Matt, that is probably how his voice sounded like with his mouth 
inside Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio. Um, do you have experience? How did you know this? How? I mean, you did it so well. Well, remember, you just said it, it had to be somebody's uh, fantasy, even if it wasn't his. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, that is pretty interesting, though. Um, I, I guess just yet another way how when you're smart about what you're doing with CGI and stuff, you can make really cool things happen, including getting some guy to put his face in Leonardo DiCaprio's butt. And I bet that smelled great. <laughs> Especially in the forest and the cold after all that. <laughs> Wait, how do you tell, like, was he like, hey, Leo, would you mind loosening it up a bit so I can kind of just slide in there? <laughs> I really need a good I mount for my for my nose and my chin. I really don't want to have to work my way through. You know, maybe one day we'll be cool enough to get Leonardo DiCaprio on and we can ask him. Although he probably wouldn't appreciate that very much because he doesn't like stupid questions that American uh, entertainment outlets tend to ask. So, Well, fun news segment, definitely. Again, no bonus segment this week or next week due to the sheer volume of films we are going to have to cover. So we are just going to jump from that into... The Movies! <laughs> have got a ton of movies i think we're just gonna make sure to reiterate one film that has been nominated and we saw it a while back uh one of the animated films this year was inside out and i gave it a five tim gave it a three please feel free to check the back catalog and go listen to that for more in-depth review i can tell you having seen it recently and just experienced an inside out birthday party over the weekend for my four-year-old that uh it's still a fantastic movie and my rating holds uh tim any quick thing you want to add re rehash or anything on inside out before we get to the rest of the movies no all right very good so we've got six movies here we need to cover where do you want to start how about sean the sheep movie sean the sheep the movie of course it's actually just called sean the sheep movie but uh, 2015 British stop-motion animated adventure comedy film. It's based on the television series, of course, Shaun the Sheep. And, um, which was, of course, a basically a spinoff of Wallace and Gromit. So that's kind of fun, if you're into that kind of thing. Uh, we are covering the day-to-day -day life of Shaun the Sheep. He's a very mischievous sheep lives out in uh, lives out on a farm just uh, gets kind of bored wants a day off convinces the other sheep to help him uh, uh get the farmer to take a nap so they can have a nice day without having the same monotony and of course they inadvertently send their sleeping farmer into the city and shenanigans ensue will they be able to uh, find their farmer and survive the city and bring peace back to the farm. Um, this is definitely a cute movie. I can't say that it's not. It, it, it's not my favorite style of animation uh, anymore. I, I can certainly appreciate it. It's not that there's anything wrong with it. It just, you know, just not my cup of tea. But that being said, I thought that... Uh, 
the majority of the jokes in the film were pretty clever and I liked the off the rails um, character of Trumper and he is this animal control guy who just basically is more or less trying to do his job but <laughs> becomes more and more unhinged as the movie goes along um the thing is though is that while i think it's a very cute movie overall and pretty clever in most of the jokes i just kind of feel like this is all stuff that that even kids in today's day and age really has seen have, have seen before now but the thing with kids is that they love repetition for the most part so they're not going to mind but i think that because of the vast majority of animation of, of animation and family friendly films in this style and genre including pixar including disney uh even dreamworks or whatever they've really tended to up the ante in terms of entertainment for adults as well as kids that when you see something that's more kid uh friendly kind of like the good dinosaur was it makes it less enjoyable overall. Now, I'm not trying to knock it for that because it is a family movie and it is specifically a kids movie, but that doesn't mean that you that anymore you get as much of a pass as you used to get. So at the end of the day, I give this one 3.5. I I can say that I liked it and while the animation isn't my cup of tea, it's a pretty decent flick and you'll probably like it too and the kids will enjoy it for sure. Go ahead, Tim. I thought the animation is was pretty outstanding. I mean, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I mean, with the claymation, or is it claymation, I guess? Claymation or something like that. Um, just how intricate and time-consuming that process is. And for the most part, the movie has a nice fluid feel to it. And the movie is constantly moving. The characters are jumping around. Uh, they're going from one set to the other. And it's, it, it's for the most part, a lot of fun. However, when the movie first began, I don't know, maybe the first 10, 10 15 minutes, or maybe the first 10 minutes or so, I had the biggest smile on my face because I thought it's going to be a nice little fun movie with these cool little witty moments and it's just going to be fun i mean i'm a big fan of ardman movies i liked pirates band of misfits that came out a couple of years ago it was kind of fun yet nothing has trumped my all-time favorite film of theirs which is chicken run i mean that is the wow god talk about a great script that movie was i so i was kind of expecting something more consistent and along those lines but really this movie was made strictly for kids and, and that's that's kind of it i mean i laughed you know I, I chuckled quite a bit throughout it but i just really wanted more you know it, it was a clever story but the jokes just didn't feel fresh i i've seen many of the same jokes before in other ardman movies so I land on 3.5 out of 5 for this one. Could have been significantly better. But for what it is, it is definitely a really good family film. Sweet. All right, where do you want to go from here, sir? How about Boy in the World? All right. Well, this, unfortunately, is the loser of the week for me. 
Um, I look, I have all the respect for foreign style films and, and um, art house kind of thing, but it is just not my cup of tea. I'm sorry. And this is a film that tries way too hard to be existential from a child's point of view. And yet clearly has something to say to adults and the problem is that while I can certainly respect the effort and even to a certain degree understand where the filmmakers are coming from and what the and the subject matter it's trying to present, especially in terms of the realistic nature that is presented in a very jarring segment in the film, you're dealing with a, a film about a boy who lives in a kind of a, I guess, a distant world for basically, for, for no better term. And he's in this kind of small village and his dad has to leave. And then basically he's kind of going, uh, he's kind of experiencing all of these bad things after his father leaves to go for work. And then he's kind of got to go, and he's got the boy has to take his own journey. So while I certainly again can understand that these are themes and that are trying that are trying to be grasped, and they're visually in a lot of ways very impressive, it's just not cohesive. And I think that the ideas and the format were so completely disparate that they never really found themselves. And I'm sure that I am in the, the minority on this. I fully accept that. But I just couldn't get behind this. And I felt myself just getting frustrated with, with it wanting to really come together in one cohesive piece instead of trying to be this idea that comes from a child's perspective, but to be salient for adults. And while I respect what they were trying to do, I just felt personally they did not pull it off. Although that rather jarring scene that I'm referring to without trying to spoil it, because it's a completely different filmmaking medium is the only thing I'll say. Um, I thought was a really cool idea. Uh, at the end of the day, I give this one two out of five. I just did not enjoy this. I thought this was a very inspired film. A lot of effort went into it. I read somewhere, I don't know how true this is or not, but the uh, film was written and directed by Ale Abreu, A-B-R-E-U. It's a Brazilian film. Uh, and what's interesting is that there's very little spoken language or spoken dialogue in the film, but when there is, it's actually Portuguese backwards. And what I appreciated from this director is that he created a movie that you didn't need any subtitles because there are no subtitles in this movie. You didn't need subtitles because the he wanted the music and the pictures to be all that you needed to understand what was going on. I love movies like this, and I love movies that strive to do something like that, because you really don't 
understand how difficult it is to tell an effective story without the use of dialogue and exposition via dialogue. And for the most part, this movie pulls it off. Until the heart and soul and the message of the movie comes out closer to the last act of the film. And it begins to get a little confusing. One thing I will mention, a commonality between a number of these films uh, that I experienced with this movie as well, is that most of the animated movies didn't completely hold my attention from beginning to end. I found myself kind of thinking about other stuff and not really in touch with it it was the same thing it was the i felt the same way with sean of the or sean the sheep the movie i enjoyed it but i found myself kind of thinking about other stuff every once in a while and that is never a good sign yes boy in the world is beautiful yes it has a good message it's a it's a good story and it's well told but i think it was just trying a little too hard to be something different. Yes, I do appreciate what L did with this particular medium of storytelling. I like how he... Another thing I read is that the entire movie was made or was drawn using crayons and colored pencils or something, something to that nature, just to give it that really child's perspective feel to it. Because the entire movie is from this child's perspective, especially how the story progresses. And it's not a very linear story. The story kind of bounces around. The locations kind of bounce around. It works for this type of movie. It definitely works. And the colors really kind of help you understand that you are watching this from this child's perspective as he is looking for his his father. Lastly, there's a lot of heart in the movie. A lot of heart and a lot of soul was put into it. But ultimately, I just felt what the director really wanted the audience to get out of it. I just don't really think it molded with the surface level story at hand about the boy and the father. It just kind of felt like one was trying to out trump the other and it felt a little Lucy uh, in in structure. But I still think it's good. I think it's worth checking out. Uh, It's a trippy-ass movie, too, so I'm sure if you're on acid or something, you might get a rise out of it. Who knows? But I uh, actually, I give this one 3.75 out of 5. So I liked it a little bit more than Matt. All right, all right. Oh, and just to clarify, because I realized I did not do that, I just jumped right in. Uh, it It is a 2013 film, uh, and, it, and it's Brazilian. So forgot to mention those things, and there you go. All right, where do you want to turn to now, sir? Anomalisa. All right, Anomalisa. All right, uh, 2015 American stop-motion drama film. It's uh, directed and produced by Charlie Kaufman and Duke Johnson, and it was written by Kaufman based on his 2005 play of the same name. Uh, the film stars uh, David Thewlis, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Tom Noonan. And it stars, uh, and basically uh, has David Thewlis playing a character, uh, a self-help author by the name of Michael Stone, who is going to promote his latest book. And yet he, it's really interesting. This this um, character of Michael Stone is a self-help author and yet at the same time he's a self-help author he is very distant and 
doesn't view the world in what would be considered a normal, adjusted way. He sees that the world, for him, is perceived as identical white men with identical faces and voices. And so basically, the entire rest of the world, with the exception of Jennifer Jason Lee's character, is played by Tom Noonan. And the film just kind of has him kind of going through the motions of this uh of, of this business trip and and yet it seems to get so wrapped up in the idea of this guy's idiosyncrasies that it seems to lose itself and stop presenting something compelling and instead starts asking you to watch something weird and not for the sake of weirdness and not something that you can be engrossed in just kind of something that leaves you to ask well so what's he going to do next what's going on and the thing is is that when it makes that switch and for me it's about the time that he gets to this adult toy store that he mistakes for a kid's toy store. And there's this shift and it's right before the introduction of Jennifer Jason Lee's character. She plays a young lady by the name of Lisa. And basically she is the anomaly of his world. And and he names her Anomalisa. That hence the title. Now, once you're in that mode, it seems that it tries to bring you back in so that you're back inset into the movie. And then something else will happen that will once again jar you back out and you're left sitting there going, okay, well, wait a minute. So what's he going to do next? You're not asking that question as a part of the narrative. You're asking that question despite the narrative. So you're not involved anymore. You're not invested in the movie. You're simply watching it. And that really hurts it because it's a really, really unique idea. And there are some really cool themes that are presented in the film. And it has almost, it's, it has an almost genius quality to the ring theory that's in it because it, it has a kind of a funny way of stopping at the starting point. It's not, it, it, it doesn't, it's not like a time thing where, you know, it starts and it, it starts. And then it stops where it started. But the theme in terms of how he views his life and how things happen to him really does seem to kind of come full circle by the end of the film. So, you know, I've, I've got to up it. I had uh, Anomalies at 2.75, but by God, these themes that I'm just talking about, I can't, that's just not fair. We're going to go 3.25 on this one. I got to say I can't I can't bash it too much because I did like it. Um but I I did not like the aspect of the fact that despite the great things that this film has going for it, 
you don't remain engrossed in the film. And something like this, I think, really needs that to seriously bring it home. So 3.25. You know, I, to an extent, I definitely agree with you. I found myself engrossed in the film up until the final act when when the character starts to really, I mean, really kind of lose it. That's when the engrossment stopped. Because there was just like this weird shift in the movie that it was, so, I mean, I don't know if maybe if calling it blunt is the right way to describe it, but it just felt wrong. One interesting thing to note about Anomalisa is that it's the first R-rated movie uh, to be nominated for the Best Animated Film category. Uh, you do see private parts. You do see puppet penises. I uh, This might be the first, because I don't even think in, in, uh, in Team America you saw puppet wieners. Uh, but you definitely do in this movie. And it might sound funny with me talking about puppet wieners. But if you've seen the trailers for this movie, or if you're familiar with the trailers for this movie, one of the main captions or taglines for the film is that it is the most, that Anomalisa is the most human film you will watch this year, and it was made with puppets. And to an extent, it is true. These Some of the stuff that these puppets do, <laughs> that these characters do, for example, trying to get back into your hotel room, you know it's the right hotel room, but the door will not read your key card. It won't. And it's difficult to really pull that off, that like moment off with real people. But God, with puppets, Charlie Kaufman and his co-director, sorry, I forget his name, they were, they were able to use that to, to their advantage. They were able to manipulate in mirror real life so well that otherwise you might not really be able to with human beings playing those characters. And it's beautiful, and it also kind of shows you what makes something human. Is it the dialogue? Is it the voice? Is it the way they look? Is it the way they speak? What makes them human? And Charlie Kaufman, once again, pulled it off beautifully, but this time using puppets. That doesn't go without saying that this is not Charlie Kaufman's finest piece of work. Uh, his first directorial debut was in 2000 and shoot, six, seven, or, or 2007 or 2008 with a movie called Synecdoche, New York with Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I think that movie is far super, not far superior, but the better of the two directing attempts. But this one is really good. Like I said, there's, there's character development that is worth enjoying. But I just overall didn't feel like the story felt complete, even by Charlie Kaufman's standards. It felt like he just didn't know how to end the movie specifically. But again, it's a really good character study. I, and I think really the one thing, like what you can really expect with Charlie Kaufman movies, even when he writes movies, he did Being John Malkovich, Adaptation, uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. He's a, a slew of films. So you know who he is, and you know all those movies. There's usually a point in the movie where the movie gets weirder. I mean, his films are normally pretty weird. But there's a point in them where something happens, and it gets stranger. It happens with this movie, when he really begins to start losing it, and 
but but the problem with how he does it or how it's handled in Anomalisa is that he's taking cues, some of the same or the many Kaufman strange cues from his previous films. And the one movie that I felt like he was stealing from the most was Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And one scene that I can compare it to would be when the two characters in Anomalisa are running through the hallway, and as they're running down the hallway, the lights start shutting down. They start turning off behind them one by one, so it, so it sounds like the, this darkness, or it looks like this darkness, is out to get them. And it's a very, I mean, it works well. It's a very effective shot. The sound effects are effective, and it works with the characters. But he used that before, or it was used before in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. The idea that, you know, your memories are leaving you, you know, you're being abandoned by your memories, therefore the light is going out around you. Well, it's kind of the same thing with this movie, what this character is going through. And that kind of knocked the majority of the points for me, is because he was taking... Uh, I mean, he was just kind of ripping, or he was definitely ripping himself off in the weird department. But other than that, and some story issues that I've had with the last act of the film, I too thought it was a really good movie. 3.75 out of 5 for me. I would definitely go back and uh, scope this one out again. Right on, right on. All right, where do you want to go from there, sir? about when Marnie was there? When Marnie was there. All right. Uh, let's see. 2014 Japanese anime film and perhaps the final Studio Ghibli film. Directed by Hiromasha Yonabayashi. I'm sorry. Yonabayashi. And let's see here. Let's see here. English dub cast, if you're interested. Haley Steinfeld, Kiernan Shipa, Ava Akers, Vanessa L. Williams, Catherine O'Hara, Gina Davis, John C. Riley, uh, Gray Del- uh, Delisle, Ellen Burstyn, Fred uh, Tatasiore, Kathy Bates, Rainey Rodriguez, and Bob Bergen. Um, I will say I was uh, fortunate enough to come across a um, subtitled version of this film. So I have, um, I, I don't know how the English version was. So that's what my review is going to be based on. When Marnie was there follows the story of a young lady by the name of Anna. And she is, saddled or she feels that she's saddled with foster parents who basically only take care of her for money and she is also trying to deal with the fact that she she's in this situation with foster parents you know why don't my parents love me why why was i given up all that kind of stuff um it's pretty evident from the outset that her foster parents actually do care about her, but they just don't know how... They seem to just not be really relating to each other very well. And Anna ends up having an asthma attack, and she ends up being sent off to the country, basically, so for the summer, so she can kind of recuperate and, you know, good old country air, blah, 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 blah. 
while she's there, she comes across a mansion and it's a very dilapidated mansion. And yet she feels drawn to the mansion and there's mysterious action within the mansion. And she investigates, things begin to happen. Other people are also involved in that aspect. And then we come to find what Anna must discover as a result of this journey. Now, I am a big fan of Studio Ghibli films. I would probably put this eh, maybe in the bottom half of a top ten for them. It's a very decent effort. I just think that... I think that the mystery aspect of the film was very, very, very heavily overplayed. And it's literally almost become a trope of Studio Ghibli. And the things that were so amazing in earlier films like Howl's Moving Castle um, were are, are, are things that have been more or less taken for granted. And it's kind of like with Pixar. Pixar, you know, like I said, was like uh, I referred to The Good Dinosaur before, um, a few missteps here and there. I think it's just... It's not a matter of the well running dry. I think it's more a matter of when you when you have had such high standards and high success and great quality for so many years, you know, you just tend to something's got to give. And this is where it's kind of giving. I think the art, of course, is phenomenal. Uh, the score is very, very good. And the writing in and of itself isn't isn't poor, per se. It's just simply the story that it's trying to tell has really just been done better and more frequently. And so the, that combination with only just a shift in like the character ID really doesn't bring anything to it. And it's pretty apparent by about eh, 25 minutes in what's going to happen. And when that mystique is already gone because it's become predictable, you've got nothing left to watch. So based on the performances of the voice actors and actresses, based on the art and the sound, it's just fantastic. But the story is just meh. So, three stars. I would much rather have preferred to give this a much higher rating, but I just simply can't. So, uh, last Oscars, another Studio Ghibli movie was nominated for Best uh, best Feature Animated Film, and that one was entitled The Tale of Princess Kaguya. And I felt that the tale of the Princess Kaguya should have taken home the best Oscar for uh, animated film. It was a beautiful movie. The story was spectacular. Super depressing movie, yes, but absolutely enchanting and engrossing. One of the most beautiful animated films I've ever seen. And of course, it did not take home the coveted Oscar. So of course, coming out of that, in other Studio Ghibli movies, I had high expectations for when Marnie was there. And it is a very good movie, a very good movie. In fact, I will go as far to say that really, compared to other films, it is an excellent film. But 
like how we were talking about well-oiled machines earlier on in the show, Studio Ghibli is a good, well-oiled machine. They know how to put out a good product. They understand that a good movie is only as good as its script and is only as good as its story. So they put a heavy emphasis on storytelling, and God, they do it right. And this movie is no different. The storytelling is beautiful. How the movie is presented is stunning. It's visually stunning and narratively engrossing. That's a better way of putting it. Narratively engrossing. And it's also, it's chock full of characters that you can easily identify with. I mean, her uh, her aunt and uncle, I think, yeah, they're the, her aunt and uncle, uh, who they love her, they'll do anything for her, you know, they want to help her out in the world, and, you know, they're just the goofy, fun aunt and uncle, and this girl, what the girl is put going through, you know, she's had a rough childhood growing up, she doesn't have many friends, so she, you know, so once she meets somebody who is her friend, nobody else knows of this girl, so it's kind of like a secret for her or a secret to her, and she is obsessed with that secret, so every day she is just really looking forward to go and hang out with Marnie. I understand that. I get that. I've, I've been in that situation. I felt I've been in a, in a situation like that before where you just, you know, you couldn't, you can't wait till you get to go do that thing again. Not necessarily. I didn't have, I mean, I didn't have, you know, a secret friend named Marnie who lived across a pond in Japan somewhere. But after a while, the story starts feeling the same. You know, the character is only so many times you can see her, you know, go meet Marnie and Marnie disappears. And the next day she gets up. She's so excited. She has friendly banter with her aunt and her uncle. She's out the door. Maybe she runs into people from her new school or not. Maybe she says something mean and later regrets, but then Marnie shows up or she has, they, and they both, or she only has to paddle across the river or the lake or whatever it is to get to Marnie's house and you know, stuff like that. It just starts feeling much of the same afterwards. And, and really that's kind of my only beef with the movie so I give this one four out of five stars. I thought it was very good, but it could have used a little bit more originality, I thought. So four out of five. And really, honestly, I think it definitely should be a little less than that, maybe 3.75 out of five, but it's visually breathtaking. So I think that's what really bumps it up there. Fair enough. Well, two movies left. Are we going happy or are we going... Not quite so happy. Uh, let's end off on a low note and <laughs> uh, or a high note for me, I guess. And let's do uh, the hundred-year-old man who climbed out the window and disappeared. All right, hundred-year-old man who climbed out the window and disappeared is a Swedish film, uh, and it's 2013 comedy films directed by Felix Herngren, and it's based on the novel of the same name by Jonas jo- uh, Jonas Jonasson. Or Jonas Jonasson? I don't know, whatever. Anyway, um, we've got a young guy here who's really not so young. (laughs) Uh, His name is Alan Carlson. He is a guy who has had pretty much a lifelong uh, obsession with explosives. It actually lands him in uh, trouble on more than one occasion. On his 100th birthday, he decides he's going to go out and have himself... um, 
I don't know if he really sees it as one last adventure, but he's decided he's going to go out with a bang, <laughs> as it were. Uh, finds himself re reminiscing about his past via flashbacks, but at the same time experiencing a rather unique 50 million pound uh, chase, as it were. Uh, I've, I, when we were talking about this briefly in the pre-show, I, I kind of made this... If, to me, this movie felt an awful lot like Forrest Gump meets uh, Being There. And the, it, it's, a, it, it's a really interesting way of making a film. What I really, really liked about it was that it it took so many different aspects and mashed them up together. And I think that where that was both the strength of the film was that it was taking so many different aspects, bringing them together, but telling them in kind of an action way and kind of a comedic way. Um, not quite drama, but definitely was able to have some, some subtleties and a little bit of seriousness in there as well. But the, uh, but it just did it in such a way that you were having a really good time with everything that was going on, especially as Alan meets, uh, you know, his new friend in the present, as it were, which is more or less just kind of <laughs> randomly knocking on doors or what have you. But um, the one thing that really pulls the movie back, though, and for me, uh, it, it's a one star draw, but it's a pretty important star draw, is that while the film does so many things right, it's just, it keeps doubling down on that. So it just gets more and more outrageous. And you you stop having fun, you stop having as much fun with it because um, it just starts to lose all credibility. I mean, granted, the story itself is just completely outlandish, but it's already a movie. You do suspend some, meth you know, some belief when you go into a farce like this the thing is is that you can only take that suspension of disbelief so far and really honestly about the halfway mark it, it kind of pushes past that boundary and never really looks back and you can either love it and accept it for that or you can come down a little harder on that for me I still enjoyed it overall, but I can't I can't give it more than four stars. I really enjoyed it, but it just it just pushes that truck a little too hard. So check it out if you get a chance. I, I'm upset that this really only got a nomination for best makeup and hairstyling. I think this could have been a contender for best foreign film. What do you got there, Tim? So that was three point seven five for you? Four. Oh. There you go. Four. Uh, this it was the winner of the week. The winner. Oh, sh oh man. Oh, that's sad. Well, shoot. I don't want to do room now. Then <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, so the hundred year old man who climbed out the window and disappeared. It it's a very entertaining movie, and I'm gonna keep this review short because whenever your ma your main criticism for the movie is that there is too much plot there's really not too much you can say without giving away the plot uh for the most part but i just felt like there was just way too much plot for its own good 
did they really need Alan Ford playing the same, however more toned down version of his previous characters? Alan Ford was the main bad guy in Snatch, for example. He is pretty much the main antagonist in this film as well. The gangster looking for his money, or I guess you'd call him a gangster, but definitely not the, the as crass as he is and, and excited as he is in his other films. Yet, he, it's virtually the same character. So it really didn't need that. I, I really don't think the movie really needed all the bumbling, idiotic criminals either. It just kind of ate too much into, in, into I think, the, uh, a movie that felt like it was more simplistic at heart. It's still a good movie, and I do recommend it. I give it three point. Two five out of five. <laughs> Man, you, you really had us hanging on that, you know, quarter star. But... <laughs> All right. Well, then that is going to leave us with room 2015 canadian irish drama film directed by lenny abramson written by emma donoghue based on her novel of the same name film stars brie larson jacob tremblay joan allen sean bridgers and a very very brief appearance by william h macy um all right so all right the film is ostensibly about a young woman and her son who have been living in captivity for the for the son's entire life um because the mom was abducted as a teen and then stuck in this room and has been raped every day for at least at least 6 years and it's then follows their subsequent escape and reentry into the real world. Now, um, I had mentioned this. I know I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I saw this movie with my wife. Uh, we had, we saw it uh, at at the theater for our anniversary and everything. And so I had shown her the the trailer to you know determine whether or not she wanted to see the movie or whatever and so i was a little upset by some bait and switch that happens in the trailer versus what you actually see in the movie and yet at the same time that's not the biggest draw for me i thought that this was a film that several times went to the brink of being amazing and satisfying and then walked away from the edge to try and tell a different story. And that story that they were on the brink of being amazing was watching the actual recovery of Brie Larson's character. Um, and her name is Joy. Now, and, and when they step away from the brink, they instead focus on Jack, who's played by uh, Jacob Tremblay. The, and he does a, just a great job. And I'm not trying to take away anything uh, from his acting or anything like that. But the thing is, is that the, the story is kind of created, especially in terms of what is promised via the trailer, uh, 
This is why I, 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 I only broke this stupid rule so that I would have the opportunity for my wife to see them to see the trailer to, to so that she so. But I had to watch it with her. So this is why I don't generally watch trailers if I can avoid them ever. Because had I not seen this trailer, I may have had a different score for this movie. So Which it isn't steps fair. away from, from. I'm sorry. Which, is that fair though? It absolutely is fair. If you promise me something and give me something else, I have the right to be upset. But that's about what it. marketing is, though. I mean, but you can't. I mean, you can't. Blame yes, that's them. exactly the point. If I promise you a cup of coffee and give you a cup of tea, you have the right to be upset when you expected a cup of coffee. <sighs> it's a cup of something. It's hot. It's filling. It tastes great. But it's not what I told you it was going to be. And you have every right to be upset about it. Okay. (laughs) I don't have the right to sit there. I don't have the right to sit there. But I'm allowed to market it however I want. No, you're not. No, you're not. I I just don't. Okay, fine. (laughs) Okay, help me understand what the problem with it is. Well, okay, so unlike... So you get the gist of what the movie is about. Okay, the 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 mother and her son is being held captive for a long period of time. I I mean I never saw the trailer that that you watch, so I really don't know what you're talking. Have about. Have you seen any trailer? Did you ever watch any trailer for this movie? Yeah, I watched. Uh, bef- I mean, I, whenever I went to the movie theater and they would show a trailer, show I once I think, but once I started hearing about the movie, I kind of tried not to watch anything else about it. But I mean I. I just don't, I kind of just have a hard time kind of understanding, especially with the movie, where we all know how marketing is. You know, marketing, they try to, like, I thought William H. Macy was going to have a bigger part because they show him more than they show her, uh, you know, what, who would turn out to be, I guess, her stepfather. But he had the bigger part of of the movie compared to William H. Macy. Mm -hmm. But they did that to bring more people in to start talking. Now, I don't know if the trailer you saw was the same one or the trailer I saw was the same one that you saw or uh, or or not. But I could I mean, I would think that the reason why they did that is like how they do with a lot of other movies where they try to make it more interesting or try to make it interesting other than completely depressing you for two and a half minutes and possibly not really grabbing your attention but then again i'm saying this from not completely from you know not really watching the trailer so right okay well let's take the william h let's just use your example you saw william h macy in a trailer whatever trailer that you saw i saw william h macy in a trailer that i saw and they definitely and you hit the nail on the head they definitely make it appear that he has a much larger and more important role than what he has in the film. And this is a perfect case in point of walking right up to the edge and then walking away to tell somebody else's story. Uh, They have, this is, I guess, a moderate spoiler. It happens probably about 30 minutes into the movie, so it's not kind of a life-shattering thing in terms of the plot, but just as a heads up in case you want to see it all. William H. Macy is her, it plays Joy's biological father. In the intervening years, um, her mom and dad did not stay married. So they are now having a, the, basically their first real family dinner um, since the whole ordeal is ended and they've come home from the hospital. And 
her dad refuses to look at Jack. Absolutely refuses to acknowledge that Jack is in the room. And Joy asks him to basically acknowledge his presence. Just at least look at him, right? And you can see that there's something building. And it's not necessarily that William H. Macy hates his daughter or believes that she somehow may have done this to herself or or that she allowed this to happen. But there's still kind of questions in the room and you can feel that tension build like something needs to be said something needs to happen and granted at the dinner table in front of the kid is probably not the best place but she starts she's like she's pushing her dad look at him dad look at him look at him or i'm gonna leave i'm gonna get up and go and he just is like i can't bye and he walks out and then you never fucking see him again and instead what they do is they take that shift and they walk you all the way up to something that was so critical and so pivotal that could have been so real and brought real emotion and given you not even necessarily closure per se, so much as something that could have delved into the meat of what that father must have gone through and must be thinking, having to look at the child of a rapist who dismantled your daughter over the course of at least six years. And they don't touch it. He just gets up and walks away. You never see it again, and they go back to Jack. Well, right, yeah, because the movie is about Jack and the mother. But they don't make it about her either. Because oh, it how, most now definitely you're on the other end her. of that. It's, it's about both other... of them. It's about both. It's not about both of them. It's about him. In no way, shape, or form is it about her. Because if it was about her, she wouldn't disappear for 40 minutes of the movie. She doesn't disappear for 40 minutes of the movie. <laughs> she tries to off herself, and then she's gone for the rest of the movie until she comes back in the last two minutes of the movie, and then they're just going to be okay. It's, okay, it's definitely not 40 minutes. I know that. It, the movie, okay, so for maybe 15 minutes, 15 or 20 minutes, it does switch focus back to him but it's, it's a shared leaves him what when, when does it ever not focus on him when does it never not focus on the well kid? it's a, okay for for well for the first half of the movie it's the a lot of the stuff is seen from his eyes definitely mm-hmm. but it's definitely sure. a movie about the both of them it's not strictly about him brie larson gives an amazing performance it's not it, you're right you're right it's it I'm not trying to say she doesn't do a good job. What I'm trying to say, uh, what what I'm trying to say is, is they present a story that is about a pair of people who have to act, who coexist in this most terrible of circumstance uh, stances, and then have to come to terms with that together. And they build this whole thing based on the idea of her having this family. And it's a terrible family at first, obviously. But that there is still a real family out there. And then they bring that family together finally. And it's never about that family. It's about it's about Jack's. It's the story of Jack and his resurgence into a world that he's never known because of Room. Now... 
Does that mean that Joy isn't important to the story? No, because she is. Does that mean that it doesn't that it doesn't involve her? Of course it does, because she sets the tone, she sets the world, and the things that happen to them to happen to them together. But it's not about them. It involves them, but the story is about Jack, and anything else is just simply misleading at best. <laughs> And when you simply and when you allow for other things to form that dynamic around the boy, that's great. But then you leave all those questions unanswered. None of that stuff gets resolved. One of the other major conflicts, something that is just super huge, again in the trailer that you didn't maybe that you did not see in this aspect of the trailer, maybe you got this aspect of the trailer too, I don't know, is they have this fight. Joy and her mother. Um, played by Joan Allen, who does a really good job as well. They have an argument where basically they need, they both need to come to terms with this kidnapping happened to both of them. It does not happen in the same way. And each prison is, it is, could be, claimed as one was worse than the other in a physical manifestation but a prison no matter how pretty it is is still a prison and you have this dynamic of it happened to joan just as much as um or i'm sorry it happened to nancy played by joan as much as it happened to joy played by brie and they have this argument, and it looks like it's going to build to something, and that actually something might transpire where, again, you see a breakthrough. But they walk away from that, and then it just goes back to Jack. In terms of the story being about Jack, that's, I mean, that's fine. I guess that's, that's great. He does a great job, and I'm not trying to take away from the acting performances. What is trying, What I'm getting at is that the story it told was not what I was, was A, not what I was promised, and so therefore B, not what I was expecting to see. Had they had they been honest, it might have been better, but it wasn't. So it gets three stars based on the strength of the acting performances, but I was not impressed with the story. And I have already gone on ad infinitum and potentially ad nauseum as to why. So... There you go, Tim. I'm sorry you disagree. I do disagree. I This is a 4.75 out of 5 star movie for me. Easily the best movie out of all the other movies that are uh, that are nominated, I think. She deserves the Academy Award. I thought Joan Allen deserved a, uh, a nomination. I thought Jacob Tremblay most definitely deserved a nomination. He was the best child actor of any of the other child actors uh, that we got to see this past year. Actually, probably one of the best child performances I've seen in any film. Um, and I think the movie definitely deserves to take home uh, best screenplay as well as best picture. It is, guys, it is that good. Say what you will, or, you know, watch the trailer, don't watch the trailer, whatever, but it's about the experience. It's about the characters. It's an excellent character story. You see character arcs, which is an absolutely 
um, which is actually which, which is absolutely super important for these characters. Yeah, William H Macy isn't in the film a whole lot. Yeah, Joan Allen's character she's uh, dealing with her own personal issues as well. But when it comes down to it, it's about the girl and or this woman and her and her son. Yes, the movie for the most part is seen through his perspective, especially when they are in the room, but. One thing leads to another thing. There is an action, there is a reaction, and this is what makes this movie so unique. Yes, William H. Macy's character, again, his, or William H. Macy's character leaves the film. He does not, he can't stand the, to look at the kid. Well, that's what makes it interesting, is he's human. How many, I, I, I guarantee you, given a real-life human being and put him in that position... God, I mean, I hope it, it you know, it, it never happens to anybody, but I'm sure it has happened before. How many of those dads do you think actually will look at that, at, at that, at that child? Or doesn't look at that child? But more than likely, it doesn't happen one way or the other every single time. And this is what's interesting about this movie, is that it doesn't take the obvious approach Yes, he he leaves, but him leaving, you know, Joan Allen's character, the mother reacts to that. And then you realized the her new husband, Brie Larson's character's now stepfather, why he is so important, why he is the father figure, and what he will do to help both Jack and his mother out after this horrible circumstance that they were put in. It's just a fascinating movie. It's brilliant. And I and that's really all I all I got to say about that. Um do watch it, please watch it. Let us know what you think. 4.75 out of 5 for me. Uh, a couple of things that Matt mentioned is the reason why I didn't give it a full 5-star rating. Uh there was I mean there were a couple one or two aspects where I you know, it just really didn't mesh well with the story, but that's a whole other conversation that we could get into on a future date because I really do want you guys to see this movie, especially for the performances of both Brie Larson and Jacob Tremblay. So 4.75 out of 5 for The Room. So what were the good character arcs? Well, her character arc is the fascinating one. She goes from uh, dealing, putting or her and her her son in the room, and leaving the room, and the effects of the, all that being put onto her. So there's a lot of character development and character study that goes on there. It's very real. And, and how do they explore that character arc? Well, you see her go, you know, deal with it, putting up with this. How how do you see her deal with it? Because you don't see her deal with it. That's help me understand. I'm, and I'm not fucking around with you. I'm not trying to be. You know, I'm not trying to pick at you. But when since, because you don't see it, how um, and you don't experience it, how you do how see it. You do. You do. You do. You do. Okay. She goes. So how? what? What causes her to really lose it? Well, a big thing that causes her to really lose it is when. She gets interviewed for that sixty-minute show or whatever it's supposed to be by the woman who keeps, uh, who already Brie Larson's character, who her name is, um, well, Ma, I guess. Well, whatever. 
Um, her her name is Joy. Yeah, Newsome. Uh, and and the, it, the the parents call her Joy, but yes, Jack calls her mom. Yeah, and uh, so even before then, she's been having a hard time going back to real life. Parents were divorced. I mean, on top of that, she's having to help her son become established to, uh, you know, n- you know, normalcy, I guess. And the last thing she needed was to be interviewed by somebody who is going to blame all of this on her. Some of the questions okay. that were thrown at her, well, why didn't you, uh, why didn't you just let your son, you know, leave? Or why didn't you help your son out more? Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? So that starts sure. breaking the character down. And okay. eventually, well, let me. Okay, then I would counter. Then let me let me stop you there because that totally happens in the movie, and I can see how you would interpret it that way because that makes that makes perfect sense. In the trailer, okay, again because apparently this is not what you're supposed to do is watch the trailer to make you go see the movie. That doesn't happen. But who cares? That it's literally the trailer, does though. not happen. Who cares? That, Oh my god! Well, then what the fuck is the point of a trailer? Who cares? You saw the real movie. What do you mean, who cares? Why do I want to see a movie? You just said the point of a trailer is to make you want to watch the fucking movie. So if you're going to be lied to in the goddamn trailer by presented a scene that literally does not happen, fuck re-editing, fuck, you know, oh, that just one little flash didn't happen. The whole goddamn scene and the tone is completely different using completely different script. It is a literal different script. In the in the trailer, that interview scene goes along the lines of, so you really had to help him establish this world and make him understand. And she's like, yeah, I know, this is, you know, it was really big struggle for me. Oh, my goodness. It, you know, take us through all of the things that you had to do to help to help you and your son survive in this horrible environment. That's the scene that's in the fucking trailer. So don't tell me that that doesn't make a difference when you get to the movie and it's what the fuck kind of evil mother are you? Well, I'm sorry that you didn't or I'm sorry that you wanted the trailer to ruin stuff for you. It doesn't need to ruin stuff. Show something different. <laughs> What? Okay, whatever, man. I, I just think it's a little ridiculous. Then, okay, you can't say it's ridiculous, especially since you're sitting there claiming that you didn't watch the trailer. You've already seen the movie, so nothing was changed for you. But I do know going in, I can't, I, I mean, you take a trailer for, well, I mean, I've kind of learned to take a trailer from uh, with a grain of salt for the most part. Because more than likely, some of the stuff that you see in trailers, depending on the movie... I mean, I could see how maybe misleading it was for you know with this film, since I mean, I don't know if normally this happens with these movies. I don't know that they will kind of put different stuff in the trailer so it doesn't spoil anything. But what, I'm just what, going off of the movie. What was going to be spoiled? I've seen the the movies about them getting out of the room. They get out of the room. Okay. Well, it's been like a hundred episodes, folks, but there it was. Next week's epi- next week's movies, Amy, Cartel Land, The Look of Silence, <laughs> What Happened, Miss Simone, and Winter on Fire. And this is Matt upset. Fight he talks freedom. like this. Yes, and there's Tim trying to interject some stupid shit because, you know, he can edit it out. Oh, fuck off. All right, God so are we ready for the spiel or what? Spiel on. Very cool. 
Music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. As for us, we are the SLS Cast. Go to slscast.com. Send us an email to the show at slscast.com. Follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. Follow Matt on Twitter at nitwit12345. Follow Tim on Twitter if you would like to do so. And until next week, this is Matt saying thanks to Charlie Kaufman. I get to say this. Constantly talking isn't necessarily constantly communicating. And this is Tim saying... uh... Hopefully see you guys next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com, at the SLS Cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can always subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.